Good evening. If you would, uh, turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. That's where the lesson is going to come from this evening, Daniel chapter 5. Uh, we talked a little bit about Daniel this morning, and we talked about his call to be in exile that um, he didn't really have much of a say in. His homeland was destroyed, and he was carried off to go live as a stranger in a foreign land. And yet while he was there, he had to continually work out the balance between being uh, a, a citizen of Babylon and, and living in the king's royal court and in trying to live in such a way that he could uh, honor man and be helpful to the king, but at the same time living in such a way that he was uh, unyielding in his faithfulness and commitment to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And sometimes he was able to uh, excel and he would be promoted and he was uh, blessed because of his efforts in Babylon. And sometimes uh, his friends were thrown into fiery furnaces, or sometimes he was thrown in a lion's den under the Persians. Like, there were times that the, the, what he was trying to work on would, would bless him, and there were times that it led him into a lot of conflict. But Daniel does a really good job, I think, of towing the line of knowing how to be uh, faithful to the kingdom of God while living in kingdoms of this world. And uh, Daniel uh, becomes a, a helpful example from generation to generation as to how to go about doing that. We talked a little bit this morning about um, the, the first seven chapters. We kind of briefly sketched some of them. Uh, and we talked about how chapters two through seven are, are fascinating in that the, like, the language of the book changes mid-book. So it's like, imagine you're reading a novel about an American who travels to Paris for the summer and they fall in love or something. And uh, the, the first couple chapters are in English. And then once they arrive in Paris, the first person who speaks, it, it starts being written in French. And then the rest of the book uh, while they're there is in French and you have to be bilingual in order to read it. The assumption is that the people reading this book are going to be bilingual because they were actually dramatically impacted by the things that happened in this book. Like, like they were Hebrews who spoke Hebrew, but after this domination, they became a people who by and large spoke Aramaic. And so this book, the way that it's written is evidence of the events that took place during this book. Uh, and so it's really an interesting thing. And it's like, in the most vivid way you can do it as an author, taking an audience into a foreign land. It's like, not only do you tell them it's foreign, not only do you tell them about Babylon, you actually start using the language. And it starts in chapter 2 and verse 4. Uh, you can just go and read the verse where, where the switch happens. It's, it's, I think it's interesting the way that it's done. This is after King Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, and uh, they're trying to, he's trying to get an interpretation of it. And uh, chapter 2 and verse 3 says, The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then verse 4 says, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And then it starts from right there. And it goes through the end of chapter 7, where the rest of it's written in a different language. And so uh, everything we're about to read uh, in chapter 5 is going to be part of that Aramaic section. Um, that's, that's the section that's reminding you of living in a foreign land. All right, but we also talked about how there's this chiastic structure, this structure where it kind of builds to, our, to a, a center point in the middle, where you have the, the, the uh, list of nations as a statue in chapter 2, the list of nations as animals in chapter 7. And then you have the uh, being thrown into the fiery furnace in chapter 3, and you have being thrown into the lion's den in chapter 6. And then you have chapters 4 and 5. And you think, well, what's the main point of chapters 4 and 5? 
Chapter 4 is when King Nebuchadnezzar, in essence, loses his mind and lives as an animal until he comes to understand something. And that something, I think, is going to be key, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, And then chapter 5 is about uh, Belshazzar, who ends up losing the kingdom, and God writes on the wall the many, many tekel yuferson. And in that, you see that he loses his kingdom because there was something he failed to understand. And the thing that led Nebuchadnezzar to become a beast in the field is the same thing that led Belshazzar to lose his kingdom. And it was a failure to understand something crucial about who they were with respect to who God is. Uh, Look with me at Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17. This is in the... uh, So, you know, Nebuchadnezzar ends up having this dream, and he wants to get it interpreted, and so Daniel does interpret it for him. Uh, But prior to that happening, look at chapter 4 and verse 17. It says, This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is the command of the holy ones, in order, this is key, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. All right, so what uh, is going to end up being a central repeating theme in these central chapters of that chiasm that's been building up to this is the idea that the Most High, that's God, is ruler over the realm of mankind. One of the ways you know that that becomes the central point is because look at uh, verse 25 and look at how verse 25 ends of Daniel chapter 4. The the final few verses, uh, lines there say, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. It gets repeated. And he's saying that you are going to live as the lowliest of human, basically you're going to live as an animal, like lowlier than all humans. You think you're the greatest, you think you're the king, you think you get whatever you want, you think you're the most mighty man who's ever lived, and when you uh, say you want that nation, you conquer that nation. When you say you want that woman, you get that woman. When you say you want that gold, you steal that gold. You did it from the temple in Jerusalem, you've done it to all of your neighbors, you have accrued massive military and incalculable wealth, and you think that you're the most mighty, powerful human being on uh, on, on earth, Well, why don't you take a minute and recognize who you actually are? You are an animal, and you're living as a beast. Remember, that's the image of these nations in chapter 7. It's the beasts coming from the sea. Chapter 4 is probably the most honest look at who Nebuchadnezzar really is uh, than anything else. It's not the powerful king who's covered in jewels who makes himself a big golden statue. He's living like an animal. And God is showing that to him. And he's showing that to him until he becomes, until he begins to realize that he's not as great as he thought he was. In fact, there is someone who's mightier than him in comparison to whom he is just an animal. And so when you look at uh, chapter uh, 4 and verse 32, talking a little bit more about uh, this experience that Nebuchadnezzar is going to have, Verse 32 says, And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. All right, that's the third time in this couple of verses where that point is being driven home. So what is the central point of this uh, this 
Aramaic section of the chiastic structure of these six chapters that is like, what's the central point? In order to get the whole thing, you have to understand that the Most High is a ruler in the realms of mankind. And if Daniel begins to think, oh, we need Israel to destroy Babylon, that's where we'll find our hope in their king. Or if he begins to think, you know what, I need to really give all of my faithfulness to Nebuchadnezzar because he's the most mighty king on earth. Or after Nebuchadnezzar dies, he starts thinking, I need to give my allegiance to Belshazzar because he's going to be the true king. Or if he starts to think after Babylon falls and the Persians are in charge, he thinks, you know what, the Persians are even mightier than the Babylonians. I should attach myself uh, through faithfulness to, to Darius. Every one of those decisions is betraying uh, the one point that he should, and that he actually does, uh, maintain consistently throughout his life and throughout these books. And it's the point that we should be getting from it. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, Zedekiah or Jehoiachin, or Jehoiakim back in Israel. And it doesn't matter if it's Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It doesn't quite matter whether it's Belshazzar. It doesn't quite matter whether it's Darius. Your commitment remains the same. Your commitment is Yahweh. Your commitment is to your God, and that's who you serve faithfully, no matter where you live and no matter who is in charge. That's your purpose. That's what you are called to do. And so the kings have a really hard time learning that lesson. Daniel pretty consistently, chapter after chapter, has it. And so Nebuchadnezzar lives as a wild animal until he gets that lesson. And, and as you keep reading, he does uh, apparently seem to learn that lesson. Chapter 4 ends with him being restored and him receiving his right healthy mind back, and him coming to realize that there is someone far greater than himself. Chapter 4 and verse 34. And, and chapter 4 is fascinating because it's also written first person. Like it's written from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective instead of like Daniel's perspective or the perspective of a narrator. Like when, when he says, I, it's Nebuchadnezzar speaking. And so look at verse 44, 34. It says, uh, but at the end of this period, of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassed greatness, surpassing greatness was added to me. And so he ends, he gets his kingdom back. Uh, things look like they're going great for him. He's come to understand that there is someone who is mightier than him. You don't get um, the indication of like monotheistic commitment to the God of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar, but you at least get an understanding that, that he has that there is someone to whom he um, is subject. And that's something a lot of kings fail to realize they tend to think that they are their own gods. And Nebuchadnezzar started off this chapter thinking that way and then was humbled to come to realize there's one greater. Well, chapter 5 and verse 1 begins by saying, Belshazzar the king held a great feast. All right, the reason that's interesting is because chapter 4 ends by Nebuchadnezzar speaking. 
And then there's no little historical interlude to say, and then Nebuchadnezzar stopped being king. And then there was, like historically, after his kingdom, there was uh, a few people who reigned briefly and kind of fought with each other. And, uh, but eventually the kingdom uh, sifts to a guy named Nabonidus. And Nabonidus becomes king. And he is the one who, uh, according to Babylonian records, was king until they fell to the, Babel, or to the, the Persians. And so Nabonidus is the final and last king of, uh, of uh, Babylon. So when you read this right here, like if you ignore that chapter five, because remember these, these books were not written with chapters and verses, those were added later. It's such a stark and striking contrast, like, like shift. All of a sudden we're years later, we're in a, a different time with a different king, and Daniel's still there, but there's no discussion about why or how or when that happened. So apparently that's not the important thing. Like, I think you're kind of supposed to be reading these as individual little sections, little stories that stand on their own. And you read this story as it stands on its own, and then you see how it relates to the other one. So there's not a lot of blending from one story to the next. It's just story, 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 story. And that's what you're going to get right here in uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. No, no introduction to it. Just all of a sudden, okay, there's a new king. And his name is Belshazzar. Now, I said a second ago that Nabonidus was the last king in Babylon before the fall of, uh, before the fall of Babylon to the Persians. So that, for a long time, this is one of those interesting uh, passages where uh, you've probably heard stories about this. I know we're doing an apologetics class on, on uh, Wednesday nights where these types of things are brought up. But it had been maintained that Belshazzar was pretty much probably a figment of the author's imagination. Because we know from Babylonian records that Belshazzar was not king. That the king was a guy named Nabonidus. Uh, and so, you know, if you were a conservative Christian, you might try to say something like, well... Maybe that's two different names for the same guy or something where you're trying to figure out a way to make sense of it. But something interesting did happen uh, that helped shed some light on this. And it's a reminder to always, always be humble when approaching something in the Bible that you don't understand. If you're coming across something in the Bible and there's a king or something that uh, archaeologists say, we don't have any record of this person ever being king. Say, okay, well... We actually don't have a record of a lot of things archaeologically. Like, it's kind of rare for something to endure for that many years and then to be found and discovered. There's like, countless things that we've never discovered. So a name and a piece of literature not having archaeological evidence behind it is very, very common. And names that appear in only one source are very common. Uh, again, it's rare for an ancient document to last a very long time, thousands of years, then to be discovered later on. We have such a small percentage of all that there actually ever was. So to say, well, Belshazzar is only mentioned in this one source, and we don't have that in any Babylonian source, so you know we need to doubt him, is a lot more than you should say. But the fascinating thing is we actually did find records of, of Belshazzar. Uh, apparently Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son. And as his son, there were times when Nabonidus would leave the city of Babylon and go live in other places. Sometimes perhaps even because of conflict. Uh, he would go and uh, he stayed in Saudi Arabia. Uh, it wasn't called that then. But uh, he stayed there for like a 10-year period and he left his son 
uh, Belshazzar in charge of the, the city of Babylon, in charge of the actual Babylon itself. Not, not necessarily the entire empire, but, but where Babylon was. And that's where he was living, and that's where Daniel was living. And so uh, he went from being someone who people doubted his even existence to, oh, he actually did exist, he actually was a king, and he actually was reigning at the time that uh, Babylon fell to the Persians. So it ends up working out pretty well. Um, but there will be times, and this is just something we have to know, there will be times you'll come across names and people in the Bible that we don't have any extra biblical, either written or like archaeological evidence to support their existence. That's not a reason to panic. Uh, it's very rare to, to find that. And if you do find it, it's kind of incredible. And it's incredible the amount of times we found that in the Bible. Like people who in the Bible, who at one time their existence was doubted, like Sargon II was a king of Assyria, same type of thing. We didn't have any record of him outside of the Bible, like 200 years ago, but then 100 years ago we did. And, and so that type of thing happens, and it's, it's cool when that happens, but if that has not happened yet, be patient. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Either way, uh, when you're talking about things that are thousands of years ago, evidence in, in actual tangible what you can hold artifacts are kind of sketchy and rare. So uh, you can't always put all of your hope in finding something like that. Anyway, that's not overly important to the lesson. It is a cool thing that Belshazzar is someone whose existence was doubted. Now we know a lot about him. We know what family he's from. We know who his dad is. We know uh, that he was reigning at this time. And there's also a few clues in the book of Daniel itself that he wasn't the sole king over Babylon, over the Babylonian Empire. Because there is going to be, it's going to be repeated several times in chapter 5, where whoever can interpret the writing that's on the wall, he's going he's gonna to offer some blessing to them. The greatest clothes, all kinds of wealth, and authority to be not second highest in the land, but third highest. And that pops up, if you look at like chapter 5 in verse 7, the second half of the verse says, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Well, why third and not second? Well, if you are a co-regent, if you are a co-king at the time, you can't really make the guy number two, but you can make him number three. So it's a pretty good promotion uh, for, for Daniel, but uh, it is evidence that there was someone other than this king who was also reigning and might have even been above him that uh, he couldn't give Daniel a, you know, a, a promotion beyond him. Uh, so he, he, the highest he can get is third. But let's uh, read chapter 5 kind of read through it and, and talk about some things and, and see how it relates to chapter 4 and to that, that major overall point about uh, the Lord ruling in the kingdoms of men. What you'll see is a contrast. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one who ends up becoming like a beast, but he comes to realize that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, and he humbles himself before God, and he is restored. In chapter 5, Belshazzar, he is going to know He's going to be aware of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to know that story. And he's going to know that he should accept that message and learn that lesson. But he is, in fact, going to reject it his entire life. And he's going to die at the end of the chapter. Uh, so you have one person who comes to realize it and is restored. Another person who rejects who God is. And he ends up losing his kingdom. And that in and of itself, just the story of these two people, 
it demonstrates that it's the Most High who rules in the kingdoms of men. Uh, God is the one who humbled Nebuchadnezzar and then lifted him back up, and then uh, humbled Belshazzar never to lift him back up. Uh, and it's because of the arrogance with which they uh, faced their reign. So, chapter 5 and verse 1 begins. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Okay, so that's a big feast. Big feast, thousand nobles. This kind of, in my mind, is going to remind me of certain passages. Um, it makes me think of things like, uh, like um, Artaxerxes, or, or Xerxes, rather, uh, Ahasuerus, uh, in the book of Esther, who uh, invites all of those like 120 uh, regions to come and to have this, or it's, it's a 120 day feast uh, for like all of those under his control. And, and he's demonstrating his wealth and his power and he's trying to make alliances and he's trying to build up his own name. And then he tries to have Vashti come out and dance for him and she refuses and that causes a bunch of embarrassment for him. But that type of big, huge feast where you're trying to uh, perhaps demonstrate your wealth and power, where you're trying to have people who start to have more confidence in you. Like if, if you go to someone's house and they're able to bring in all of the wealthiest and most important humans like across the community and they're all at this gathering and they have the best food you've ever tasted and they have the best wine that's ever been made and they have the fanciest uh, plates and all that stuff, you're gonna begin to realize oh, I'm at an important person's house. Like, this isn't just, you know, some guy. This person matters. He's important. And other people want to come and get to know this person. Well, kings would sometimes do things like that to demonstrate, hey, I have a really powerful military. I have a whole lot of wealth. I have the most beautiful women in the world. If you want to make an alliance, I'm the guy to make an alliance with. If you want to pay tribute to someone, I'm the guy you should pay tribute to. So you have kings who do that type of thing. I think King Herod probably doing something similar to that uh, when he has his daughter-in-law come out and dance, and then he has John the Baptist beheaded. He's trying to demonstrate his wealth and his power and his greatness. And I think you have a similar thing probably taking place here with Belshazzar. By the way, I think you had a similar thing that took place with Nebuchadnezzar all the way back in chapter 3 with uh, that big old statue. And he wanted everyone to fall down and worship that big gold statue. That's a way of uniting all of the people under the umbrella of his own greatness. And so that's what he's wanting to do. And I think Belshazzar is thinking, I'm going to do that type of thing right now. I'm going to show everyone how powerful we are. So not only am I going to have a thousand come here, I'll eat and I'll drink my wine in front of them. And you know what I'm going to drink my wine with? I'm going to drink my wine in the cups of gold that came from the treasuries of the people we've conquered. And so he starts thinking about who can I, you know, if you have cups of gold from the treasuries of places you've conquered, that shows you're wealthy and it shows your military is really strong. And so when you get to verse two, it says, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought the gold vessels that, they had, that had been taken uh, from the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and wives and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Okay, so 
Notice some of the repetition of phrases, that he's drinking the wine, that's repeated several times, he's doing it from the gold vessels that came from God's house. He stole God's vessels and brought them to his house and is now drinking from them in front of everyone to show his greatness. And then he does so with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. Uh, Like all of his important men, all of his many wives, and the women who aren't quite wife status, but he still has. Like all of those things are there to show who he is and how great he is. And he's, by taking God's golden cups... (laughs) And drinking from them and giving them, he's basically saying, I can take even what's God's and make it my own. I'm greater even than God. What happened when Nebuchadnezzar did that and started to think that way? Well, he lost his kingdom for there a little while. Uh, What's going to happen to Belshazzar? Well, the story will continue. God will eventually say, okay, enough of that. Um, You get to verse 5, and as all this is going on, suddenly... The fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand uh, that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. You're great, powerful king, folks. Uh, This king who thinks he's so mighty, all of a sudden a hand appears and starts writing and his knees are knocking together and his face goes pale in front of everyone you begin to realize, oh, there is someone more powerful than this king. One hand makes this king tremble in fear. Uh, that's, that's a nice little way of, of uh, humbling uh, this king who thinks he's larger than life. Verse 7, the king called aloud uh, to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me, shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. So the king wants to know what this message says. And this passage right here should remind us of chapter 2 and chapter 4, both Nebuchadnezzar stories where he has a dream, and in order to interpret it, he brings all of the wise men and tries to see if any of them can. And in each of those stories they can't. Uh, And then Daniel's the one who's able to. So that's a repeating pattern in each of these stories, and it's about to be repeated here again with a new king in Babylon. And so, uh, verse 8, then the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription. We should be expecting that by this point. Having already read the the previous stories, his wise men are going to fail where Daniel's going to succeed. Uh, And that's because the source of their information is different. Uh, These wise men, their source of information are the gods of gold, silver, wood, stone. Uh, Their source of information is their own magic books and their own ideas. Whereas Daniel's source of information is actually the God of Israel, the one who created heavens and earth, the one who created Babylon. And so uh, Daniel is going to be able to uh, do this interpretation where the other ones fail. So verse 8 says none of them can. So then verse 9, Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his face grew even more pale and the nobles were perplexed. Uh, They see their king is, 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 you know, terrified again. He's, He's in fear. So then verse 10 The queen enters the banquet, and uh, because of the words of the king and the nobles, and the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, 
And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, he appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of... This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So what's fascinating about this is it's the queen who's able to tell him about Daniel. So Daniel was very useful to Nebuchadnezzar. He pops up several times in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Apparently, by the time of Belshazzar, has no clue who Daniel is. Like he, he is not making use of the person who had the most wisdom in the land and the wisdom that came from God. It shows you how even though Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty ruthless pagan, he at least would occasionally learn about God and say something about the greatness of God. He does that a couple of times. Uh, Belshazzar seems to be so distant and removed from the actual one God of the universe that He's not listening to anything uh, from him. And even Daniel, he doesn't know anything about. And even when the queen tells him about Daniel, she seems to think that he has the wisdom of the gods, but she doesn't even know about uh, the, the one true God that Daniel serves. And so they, they don't, they're not making any use of the wisdom that God has placed in Babylon. They're ignoring the wisdom that's right there in front of them. And so the king now hears about this Daniel, and he wants them to check it out and see. So then verse 13, Daniel was brought uh, before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple, wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. So he repeats the, the rewards mentioned earlier. So here the, the king brings them out, and, and I'm sure the king is thinking, what an opportunity for Daniel. You know, Daniel is brought out. He gets, this is his chance to perform. I've heard great things about him, and let's see what he can do. Like, he's bestowing this royal blessing upon Daniel to be able to appear before him and interpret this, and he'll give him all sorts of these wonderful things. The thing that's interesting is Daniel's attitude towards Belshazzar is not quite the same as Daniel's attitude towards Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel seemed to like Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you know, at least that's the impression you get in a number of times in the earlier stories. He, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was at least willing to learn from some of his mistakes a few times. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, would at least pay homage to the God of Israel sometimes. He would bless Daniel sometimes. Whereas Belshazzar seems to be ignoring everything outside of himself. Like, he doesn't learn his lessons. He doesn't know anything about this God, doesn't care to, and he won't listen to the the prophets of this God or or the wise men. Like, he seems to be so self-focused that God hasn't penetrated into his life or reign at all. 
And so Belshazzar is offering Daniel this wonderful stuff, and Daniel doesn't respond to him with the kindness that he usually responds to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says to him in verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. It's like, that, that's not going to win me over, king. Uh, I don't need your purple, and I don't need your gold, and I don't need to be the third highest in the, in the land. Uh, keep your gifts for yourself or give them to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. I think that's reward enough for Daniel to let the king know what God actually wrote up there. Uh, and so Daniel's going to... Uh, First, before he gives the interpretation, give the king a stern lecture on what he should have come to know by now by looking at the previous reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, What Daniel says in verse 19, because of the grandeur, which he's, uh, sorry, verse 18, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him All the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. So he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, and he's saying, God gave, like, so much greatness and grandeur and, and, and might and power to Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him a kingdom, and he could do as he wished. So much so, verse 19 says, that all peoples of every nation and uh, every language they feared and trembled before him. Take a brief pause for a second, and just, if the main idea that we keep going back to is that the Most High is the ruler in the realms of men, who gave that power to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he says clearly that the Most High did that. The Most High, God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar. And he did so to such an extent that who would tremble before him? It was all peoples, nations, and men of every language. God's the one who gives kingdoms, and God is the one who could make the whole earth come to revere a a certain king. Keep those ideas in your head for when you get to Daniel chapter 7, and all of these beasts come from the sea, and they're all claiming to be these kings and these great royal nations, And then God chooses one like a son of man. And in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14, the ancient of days gives to him dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. And so the blessing that Nebuchadnezzar had were all peoples, nations, and men of every language blessed him because he was given a kingdom from God. It's not his anymore that the idea of Daniel is God's going to give it to someone else who is not one of the beasts who comes from the sea, one like a son of man. And that's why that language and that promise becomes central to the hope of Israel in the years to come and, and in the reign of Jesus, that's go, or the life of Jesus and, and uh, his kingdom. He's going to pick up on that idea and refer to himself repeatedly as that son of man. Uh, he's the one who's going to receive that kingdom. He's the one who, uh, people of every nation, language, and tongue. So when Paul goes out on his missionary journeys, and he's converting not just Jews, but Gentiles, and people who speak every different language, and even the gift of tongues itself, in like the book of Acts, uh, where you see them speaking in tongues so that people of all the different nations can understand in their own language, 
That's a picture of the reign of Jesus being given by God, taking root and taking place in this world. And so the book of Daniel is clear that God is the one who bestows these kingdoms. And certain kings, when they have been given that, they try to usurp that and take it for themselves. So if you're Nebuchadnezzar, you become an animal. And if you're Belshazzar, well, we'll keep reading and we'll see what happens. Uh, Verse 20 This is Daniel still explaining to Belshazzar before he gives him the interpretation. He's saying, God blessed your father Nebuchadnezzar with all of this. And then verse 20, it says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from the royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys, and he was given grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. And then notice the phrase, until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realms of mankind, and that he sets it over uh, whomever he wishes. It appears again in chapter 5. So chapters 4 and 5 really should be read together because chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's fall with a brief rise at the end. Chapter 5 is the fall of Belshazzar, and you're supposed to read them with one another to see that one person learned his lesson, that there is a God who's greater than them, and the other one has not. Verse 22, after telling him that that's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Even though you knew it, even though you're well aware of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, you still followed in the path of lifting your heart up, but never humbling yourself. And so that's why when you start drinking from God's cups and acting like you're greater either than, even than him, that's why the hand appears on the wall. And so, verse 23 This is what Belshazzar has done instead of humbling himself. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised to the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which which do not see or hear or understand. But the God in whose hands you uh, are your life breath In all your ways, you have not glorified. That's such a powerful condemnation right there. You've taken the one true God's gold and used it as your own, as a way to gloat about your greatness. And you've given it to your nobles and your wives and your concubines. And you've worshipped the gold and the silver and the stone and the bronze. You give reverence to those things. But the one who is responsible for the very life breath that you have within you, the one who has given you this kingdom to begin with, and the one who created you, he's the one you have acted greater than and that you've completely disregarded. Verse 24, then the hand was sent from him. So this is God's response to that level of arrogance. Then the hand was sent from him with the inscription, uh, and the inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription. So now we're finally getting to the interpretation. Many, many tekel uferson. Uh, this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. So God has looked at it and counted it and, and calculated the, the date that it will end. And it's actually going to be like in an hour. You know, it's going to be that night. Uh, so it'll be really quickly. Uh, but the number has been, uh, has been calculated. 
verse 27, tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. God has weighed his glory and realized that uh, this is not enough. It's like you go, when you go to the, uh, the market and you're trying to buy something and you have to put the weight, you know, this is the way old markets work. Uh, there's the scales there and you have to put the weight of, of your wealth on there and the kingdom has been weighed and there's not enough. Uh, it's been found wanting. It's found deficient. And so, verse 28, uh, Paris, uh, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, that's the word Persians is in there. And so what he's saying is God has numbered you. God has weighed you. He found you wanting. He found you deficient. And so your kingdom isn't going to last with you. It'll be given to another. And you can actually, like historically, we're not told this in Daniel 5, but we do have records of, of all these things. Herodotus writes about it, and you know, there might be some, some embellishment and, and some grandeur added to the historical stories, but uh, some pretty interesting tales of how Cyrus uh, came to destroy and defeat Babylon, uh, even, even about him diverting the flow of the Euphrates River in order to get better access to Babylon in order to destroy, uh, or in order to kill the king and to take the city. But it was that night, uh, which would be in October, about uh, 539 BC, that uh, the kingdom of Babylon fell and that the Persians began to reign instead. Verse 29 says, then Belshazzar gave orders, and this is, I think verse 29 is just kind of funny. It says, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as third ruler in the kingdom. And like, that, what a great promotion to be from someone the king doesn't even know about to be third ruler in the kingdom until the Persians come that night and take the kingdom. So Daniel has this promotion for like an hour, you know, but anyway, he gets the promotion, uh, third ruler in the kingdom. And then verse 30, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was killed. And so it didn't last too long. But what's incredible is you start reading chapter six, you'll read about Darius uh, and Daniel works his way right back up in the, in the Persian kingdom before he's thrown into a lion's den. But in that you have a story of pride leading to a fall. Um, you have the same thing in, in, in chapter 4, but at least there was a repentance at the end of it. He came to realize that the Most High is ruler over the kingdoms of men. Belshazzar never, never came to terms with that fact. He rejected it his whole life, and he died in his arrogance. The higher he lifted himself, the lower he fell. Um, that is, I believe, an important message for anyone who starts to lift themselves up above their station to begin to see ourselves as perhaps more important than we are, whether you are uh, in your job or whether it's in your family or wh whether it's politically or wherever you find yourself, humility is a necessary condition of worship. Um, the, the higher you elevate yourself, the less need you have to worship anything above you because you begin to see less above you. The closer you think you are to God, the less worthy of worship God is. But the more humble we are as we approach him, the greater and the more magnificent we see him, that's the heart from which worship is born. And so these kings failed to worship God because they were too busy worshiping their, themselves. Let's make sure that we never fall into that same trap. Um, if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian tonight or would like the prayers of the church, please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.